0: The one thing I want to do today, in what I say today, I want to take away all your excuses. Amen. I just spent two days in the Lubbock County Jail, in the Lubbock County Detention Center. Don't worry, I was ministering. Okay, but the last time I was in the Lubbock County Detention Center, I was not ministering. Okay, I spent 11, the only time I've ever spent any time in a jail environment at all was, when, uh, was eight years ago in the Lubbock County Detention Center, okay? Uh, yeah, long story, I won't go into it, all the charges were dropped later, but I spent 11 hours in there, made three friends, two of them wrote me, we, we watched a ball game, and the Salisbury steak was good, but the rice was really bland. So there, I've just summarized my whole experience, and I'm like, this is why they repeat offend, Okay, but I had the opportunity to go back down there with a man of God named Scott Heiberger and they're making a movie about his life. Perhaps you saw it on my DNA of a Dangerous Church podcast. They're making a movie about his life that'll be out later this year. Michael W. Smith plays his pastor and Joey Lawrence plays him in the movie. Does anybody remember Joey Lawrence? There it is. I it is. There it is. You got it. Blossom. That's it. Right? So he's playing him. So I, I had an opportunity to go down and minister to them and take some of my team with us. We got to go see how he does it and hear his story. I thought I was on Groundhog's Day because we ministered to eight different pods of prisoners. So eight different services over two days and heard the same story. So I was pretty sure I was in a loop but it's an amazing story. And and at the end of his story, I got the opportunity to minister to those prisoners. So I had about 15 minutes at the end each time to be able to pray and see salvations. We saw over, probably, we didn't count them completely, but it has to be right around 60 salvations or so. Got saved in those two days, amen? What's amazing is not only do we have 60 salvations, but we had some powerful baptisms in the Holy Spirit. Okay, there was a lot of wobbling going on. When I prayed for them, I never touched most of them. And so there was a lot of wobbling going on. And I said, Lord, why are they wobbling and not dropping? Right, that happens when I go. And the Lord spoke to me, he says, because they're on a limited time, when the time is over in here, they have to get back to their cells. And if they don't get up, the guards will drag them off. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that's true, huh? He's like, they don't, they don't get that luxury in here of lingering. And so I'm being kind to my children. I'm letting them feel my presence, but not so much that they can't get back to where they're supposed to be. And I'm like, you're so good, God, right? I just wanted them to get slammed in the floor and slammed all over the place. But God is so gracious. He knew exactly what they needed, but they were all experiencing his presence. Now, what's amazing about that is over a dozen supernatural healings happened in those groups as well. About 190 prisoners came through there, and we saw over a dozen supernatural healings. Amen? Let me tell you about some of them. One guy came in with his wrist wrapped up. Uh, in an ace bandage because, you know, they don't give him much. But he had jammed his wrist really hard. It'd been hurting him for about a week and a half. And he had it so wrapped tight so it wouldn't bend at all because any movement in his wrist, he said, would hurt. And I prayed for him. And and as we prayed, he just began to unwrap his wrist. I never told him to. He just started unwrapping his wrist. And I'm like, what's going on with your wrist? He's like, the pain's almost completely gone. So we prayed again. I said, how's it feel? He goes, nothing. And I said, well, do something you couldn't do. And he goes, I couldn't do this. I said, no pain, nothing. And he goes, nothing. And I said, well, do something you couldn't do. Just careful, just careful. Do something carefully you couldn't do, you know, test it. And he goes, I'm telling you it's nothing. And and I'm like, that would hurt me. And he's celebrating what God did. Another man had a cane, and he couldn't stand up. And he had um, a compound fracture down his right leg. I mean, you could see the scar going up. The bone had actually come through, and it was still healing. And it was a compound fracture. It was. It was. It wasn't that long ago. Stitches were out and everything. But you know, when he came in the door, it was right. He, he was the slowest one coming in. We prayed over him, and he said the pain had gone down significantly, and he could actually put weight on his leg for the first time uh, since it happened, and, and he was standing there, and, and so I went to pray again, and when I touched the front of his leg, I had several prisoners come over and feel it to validate it, but the front of his leg was on fire, like someone had a heating pad on the front of his leg, so I felt the back of his leg, and it was cool and dry. There was nothing, no heat, nothing, but the front was on fire, so I had several prisoners come over. I said, you feel? this you feel this if you don't believe it feel it and they felt it and they said oh my gosh his front of his legs on fire and before we left he could walk back and forth without that cane that's just two of a, of a dozen stories there were so many stories but prophetic words come out I'm going somewhere with this this is necessary prophetic words came out one of the most powerful ones as I looked at a gentleman now understand um, I prophesy very accurately sometimes my interpretation needs work okay So sometimes what I'll do is I'll give a word and I'll say, I think it means this. And then later on, we'll find out not exactly it means that, but the word, what I saw is very accurate. Okay. And so I always tell what I see so the person can help me interpret or we can see what comes of the word. So sometimes we get in our own way. So God will give us a message and we're bad at the phone game, right? We're bad at relaying what it means. So I tell what I see. I saw a gentleman and he was standing there and I had a word for someone else for a March birthday and I asked him if that was his birthday. I said, who's got a March birthday? You. Is it the 27th? No. Okay. So that word is not for you. And I validated uh, how many, do you have two children? He said, no, four. I said, okay, great. That word is for someone else then. And I uh, in the first pod that I didn't get to prophesy over, but I, but I saw a word for him. I said, the Lord sees you anyways. I see you in the library and you're rubbing your eye. You take your glasses off while you're reading. You rub your eyes like your eyes are getting tired from so much reading and you put your glasses back on. And that's telling me what I interpret from that is the Lord is saying that you've begun to take serious your education. You've started actually in this season, in this cycle of coming back into prison. Now you're finally taking it serious that you want an education. You're furthering your education. And I said, the Lord says you don't have much more time in here and that you need to further finish your education when you're out. I said, does that make sense to you? And he says, yeah, I've begun to take my education serious this time. I'm going for a degree now. And he goes... And I'm getting out soon. I'm going to have to finish it on the outside. I said, how soon are you getting out? He says, 30 days. And I said, the Lord's moving in your favor. There's something about to happen. I said, uh, I kept hearing the number 12, the number 12. And I said, uh, this was on the 9th. And I said, um, watch for God to do something big on the 12th. I didn't have a lot of time, so I couldn't really ponder 12. But me knowing 12 might say, okay, either something's going to happen on the 12th or 12 is a governmental number. Okay. It's the number of kingdom government. And I would have told him man's government says one thing, but the kingdom government says another thing. So watch for God to take over. You want to know something? The very next day, they had to take some roles to somebody. So we went a d- different direction in the prison. They found that man on outtake. They had come to him suddenly the next day and said, hey, not 30 days. You're getting released today, buddy. And he got released that day. He will be home with his family on the 12th. That's just one of a lot of prophetic words that went, went through there. Um, you know, e- even names went out, situations went out. God showed me that one was, used to be a son of thunder and that he was one of the sons of thunder. And I said, who's James to you? I knew he was John, and I said, who's James to you?" He goes, that was my best friend before I came in, and he died in a motocross accident. We used to race motocross and stuff, and, and he goes, and we were going too fast, hanging out, just just motocross, you know, riding our, our bikes and stuff. And he goes, he crashed, and, and I said, I, I said, the Lord says you're a son of thunder. James is the first one to be martyred. I said, but John was a, a son of thunder, but he turned into John the Beloved. He turned into the one that Jesus loved. Like, he was still thunderous about God's love, and I spoke it over him, and he wept and bawled and said everything I said was correct and accurate. Uh, I got—I mean, there were so many prophetic words that went out. Uh, a young man that had just come in, and I saw abuse through three generations, and I was able to call it out carefully because we're in prison. Okay, you're not trying to air everyone's dirty laundry. Okay, and I was able to call it out, and he wept, and he said that everything I said was 100% accurate. Um And and he wept, and it broke the cycle. I'm believing that several of those people, that's the last cycle they will ever go through in prison. Amen? Amen? So why do I tell all of those stories to brag on the ministry? Now, there was other ministry times. I mean, powerful stuff that happened with the team ministering. They have their own unique story about what God did in that ministry time with them. It was powerful. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because sometimes we think that we are worthless But I need you to remember something. The God of heaven and earth created the heaven and the earth out of nothing. All of its beauty was created out of nothing. Imagine what he can do with you. And sometimes we think, God, you can't use me. I have no value. I am worthless. God used the least of these. I'm telling you right now, if God will touch prisoners in prison and see healings happen and see lives change and pour his love over them, you have no excuse for not receiving it. When you stand in a prison and you know someone is accused or spending time in there for murder and God speaks a word of how much he loves over that, it takes away all your excuses for what you've done in the past or how terrible your thoughts are and that God can use you right now and wants to use you. I listened to Scott's testimony as he testified to how he'd been arrested over 60 times. I won't spoil the movie for you. You guys are going to want to see the movie. Um, but but the, uh, the honest truth is the real story is crazier than the movie. They had to cut things out of it because they said this will seem too Hollywood and unbelievable. Yeah. It'll seem too Hollywood and unbelievable. Uh, the, the real testimony. So after we watch the movie, I'll show you the 10 minutes from the court hearing of his testimony because you'll say, oh my gosh, you're right. If that would have been in the movie, it would have seemed cheesy. Would, no, that that's impossible. So real life is stranger than fiction. And, and God moved in his life 60 60. Uh, 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 charges against him in his life, multiple felonies, many, 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 many felonies, dozens and dozens of felonies. And now he has one of the biggest prison ministries in, in Indiana. Like God changed his life. He was that guy sleeping in a dumpster. Okay. That crackhead on the corner talking to himself, that was him. And God transformed him into a mouthpiece for the Lord. God wants to change and transform you by the love of God into what he's called you to be. I don't care where you're at. Ain't none of you right. I don't see anybody in here. Maybe there's one of you. Maybe somebody in here. I don't know. Maybe you slept in a dumpster last night. If you didn't, God can redeem your story. If you did, God can redeem your story. So you have no more excuses for why God can't redeem your story and use you powerfully. Because the love of God transforms people. Can I just tell you this? If we lose sight of the love of God, we will never be transformed. If we don't have a foundation for the love of God, then we will never be transformed. Do you know the love of God has the power to come into your life and, and counteract everything that the enemy meant for evil? Amen. Just that one thing. I was talking to somebody about deliverance and, and talking about the, uh, uh, doing deliverance and seeing demons cast out. Oh, yeah, we see that here a lot. Especially since we moved, amen? amen. A little bit of an uptick. Okay, some of you are like, I don't, I don't know what he's saying right now. Look, I'm telling you, the Bible says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what called what? Anybody know what that's called? Come on, you grew up in church? It's a great commission, right? But nobody wants to read the second part. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and these will be the signs to follow those who believe. And in my name, they will cast out demons. That's the first one. That's before the healing. That's before the snakes bite you and stuff, okay? I'm I'm trying to skip that part. All right. Trying to skip that part. There's some people in here. They got all kinds of snakes. I don't go over their house because I ain't trying to test it. I ain't trying to test. (laughs) I know. I'm just kidding. (laughs) They don't bite. I walk out of there. Glory to God. They did not bite me. I am immune. (laughs) They're nice snakes. Okay. So I just, I just put them on a staff and take them around say, like Moses, you're going to be healed. Come on. Come on. I don't know why nobody wants to be healed right then. I don't, Everybody's, they never want to be healed when you do that, right? Crazy. (laughs) Some of you are so freaked out by snakes, you forget that Moses healed people with a bronze serpent. Okay, God can redeem even the snake. I want you to catch that. Okay, I'm not talking about the adversary. I'm just talking about the little guy on the ground. Okay, the real one. Okay. (laughs) Okay, rabbit trail, dead. Okay. But the love of God when it comes over you, can transform you in such a way. But it has to be the foundational truth of our life that we allow the love of God to come in and just radically change us because this is what the Bible says. Let me teach you something. Maybe you know this scripture, perfect love cast out all, right? I'm gonna teach you something on, on, on the enemy coming into your life. If you wanna cast the enemy out of your life, you just simply need to remember that, that scripture right there, but just stop before the end. Stop right in the middle, ready? Perfect love casts out. Perfect love casts out. doesn't matter what spirit is. It doesn't matter if it's a spirit of fear, anxiety, depression, uh, famine, poverty. It doesn't matter what it is that the enemy has laid against you. Perfect love casts out. That's the end of discussion. Fear is a powerful power and principality. It is a powerful tool the enemy uses. So if love can cast it out, it casts it all out. That's how it works. So some of you need to recognize that the love of God in you and through you is the tool you need to overcome. You're busy trying to get powerful and God just wants you to fall in love. Oh, that's a good word. That's a good word. Who does he want you to fall in love with? Well, him and the person you're in front of. He wants you to love the person that you're in front of. And when you walk in perfect love, perfect love is when you see the love of God through your eyes for the person you're in front of. That's perfect love. I'm not looking in through through my earthly lens, I'm looking in through them with the father's lens. I walked into a prison and I looked at each one of those people the way father sees them. I didn't look at their rap sheet. I didn't look at their history. I didn't look at their level of violence. I didn't look at where they were, their surroundings. I looked through the eyes of father and I said, father, say what you want to say over them. Speak what you want to speak over them. Because us humans can be very judgmental. Uh And the reality is, is he who is forgiven much forgives much. And some of us need to recognize how much we've been forgiven. We want to put a grading scale and a justice scale on everything. Some of us are are made for justice. We have justice in us. But the problem is, is that when we're the ones with the scales, we've taken God off the throne and we become the judges. We're not, ha, someone say, well, the Bible says to judge. There's a difference between judging and being judgmental. See, there are judges that let you go free. I've been to court a couple of times for some small things. I went to court one time for uh, uh, a code infraction on my trailer in my driveway, okay? And the judge says, I'll just just release that for 20 bucks. You just pay the court, cost 20 bucks. I'll dismiss the ticket. I'll dismiss everything. I said, no, thank you, your honor. I'd like to go to trial, please. He he goes, he, he told me later, he says, I didn't think you were playing with a full deck of cards when you said that. I was looking at the evidence against you, sir. This is what the judge told me. He was looking at the evidence against me. I had clearly had my trailer parked in the wrong location. Two weeks later, the code enforcement came back and I clearly, by pictures, had my, truck, my, my trailer parked in the wrong location. The evidence is stacked against you, yet you still want your day in court. This man is not playing with a full deck of cards. I had watched him rule against every single other person that morning in the courthouse. I brought my oldest son with me to watch me have victory. And I got in front of that judge and I argued my case. And when I was done arguing my case, I even had the DA on my side. (laughs) I was playing in a rock band at the time and I said, your honor, you can see clearly that the trailer is parked on two different sides of the driveway, meaning I had moved it between those two weeks. And he says, yeah, that's true. And I handed him a flyer. I said, I was, I play in a rock band and my band was in Kansas. And he looks at the flyer and he says, well, what, what is this supposed to mean to me? And the DA is looking at the flyer as well and, and, um, I said, I was up in Kansas playing with sticks. And, he, and the judge says, am I supposed to know them? And the DA literally goes, come sail away, come sail away, come. And he goes, oh, yeah. So the DA is on my side now. So I told him this story and, and the judge looked and I said, the statute says I'm allowed to load and unload. I'm allowed to park it there to load and unload. Clearly, I look, the door is open in the picture. And he goes, yeah, the door is open. I said, I'm not in the habit of just leaving my trailer door open. And the judge at the end says, Sir, I wish some of my attorneys argued as well as you do. And I'm like, Well, I'm a preacher. I have to argue with people all the time about everything. (laughs) And uh, so he says to me, He says, I didn't think you were playing with a full deck of cards. He goes, but now that I've seen the evidence, he says, when you came in here, the evidence was stacked against you, but I declare that you're innocent and I set you free. He goes, everything is dismissed. He goes, I am so glad and excited. He goes, sir, you have made my day. I am excited to exonerate you today and wipe everything clear. He said, DA, code enforcement officer, you did everything you were supposed to do, but this man is clearly innocent. See, the judge judged me and I was found innocent that day. Sometimes we need to recognize that judging doesn't mean that they're convicted. It means that they are set free. If, you, if all you ever do is convict people, you are judgmental, not judging. That is not the word of God. And the love of God is not in you. Your desire should be to be excited when you get to set one free. See, God is our judge and he has put Jesus there as an advocate to pay the price. So even when we're guilty, he pays for it. See, that's the great thing. The judge said I was innocent, but in life, we're very few times are we innocent. When we stand before God, we are not innocent. But Jesus pays that cost. How did he pay that cost? With his blood. With his death on the cross. With his blood. Oh, the blood of Jesus. The old joke says, I want to have so much power. I want Jesus to live in me so much that even when a mosquito bites me, it will fly away singing, there's power in the blood. but I want us to understand the blood of Christ. So I want to grab this communion cup. We're going to take communion today. But I want to explain to you what communion looks like, what it means. So many times we don't understand the richness and depths of communion, and we're going to dive into the the richness and depths of Passover. When we get to the Passover Seder. So this message will grow when it gets to the Passover Seder, but I want to focus today on the communion cup, because maybe some of you don't really understand why as a church we take communion. Okay, maybe why the richness and depth of that. Well, because Jesus said as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, so we should do it. End of sort discussion. And that's usually where we stop. But the reality is the richness and depth of what this actually means will change your life. It will change your intimacy level, and it will change the way in which you view the love of God. So I want you to understand what really happened on that Passover Seder, that last supper. See, some of you just figured out the last supper was a Passover Seder just right there, okay? You're like, oh, it was a Passover Seder. And in that Passover Seder, part of the process, which you'll hear about in the Seder, is that you drink the wine and you eat the bread, okay? That's a part of it. So I'm not going to spoil all that, but I just want to focus on these two things. I want you to understand what Jesus was doing on that Last Supper. See, that Last Supper, Jesus was bringing and making a new covenant. See, the Old Covenant was just a temporary holding place. That's what the Old Testament even said. It said, this is temporary. It's a holding place, It cannot fulfill what needs to be fulfilled, but Messiah will come and he'll make a new covenant. That's what the Old Testament says. He'll make a new covenant. And this right here was the new covenant the covenant of his blood and the covenant of his body. But maybe some of you do not realize what the covenant was. You see, Jesus wasn't just making a covenant, he was making a proposal, he was making a marriage proposal. He wasn't just saying, I want to make a deal with you. He was coming into a marriage proposal. Maybe some of you have wondered why right in the Old Testament, right in Genesis, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul said this is a great mystery. It was spoken about in the very beginning. It was necessary for God to lay a foundation of what it meant to come into marriage covenant together that there was a unifying of flesh. And Jesus came to make a marriage covenant with the disciples. Let me, let me explain this. You see, in Jewish culture, when a man wanted to propose to a woman, he would come and bring a cup of wine. And when he brought that cup of wine, he would make his offer to the woman and present her with a cup of wine. If she drank the cup of wine, it was a yes. She had agreed to marry him. If she refused the cup of wine, she was saying no to the marriage. So when he's handing the disciples, he says, this is the covenant I make with you. This is my blood. He's offering them a marriage. They know very well what it means to be offered a cup of wine. They understand their culture. This guy's marrying us right now? He is offering us something legitimate. Why? Because a contract can always be broken by one party. Do you know that? Every contract you make can be exited by one party. A covenant cannot. Contract can. Now, there are penalties, right? Some of you have a cell phone contract. You're like, oh, I got two more years. You can exit that contract. They will charge you penalties. There are There is uh, uh, ramifications to pay for that exiting of the contract, but you have a way out. There's always a way out. But a covenant has to be exited by both parties. That's the way it works. In fact, throughout all of Israeli history, you see the Hebrew children constantly break the covenant, right? But who doesn't? God doesn't break his covenant. He stays faithful to his covenant, even though they have withdrawn from the covenant. And God always comes back around and honors the covenant, even though they have broken the covenant, he has not. Therefore, the covenant is not broken. Both parties have to exit a covenant. One party cannot. So Jesus is making a covenant. He's offering them a cup of wine of marriage. Now, see, what's interesting about that is, and I'm just going to take you through the history of marriage so you understand the richness and depth of communion. It will change the way you take communion. Some people will say, why don't we take communion every single week? Because I am not trying to diminish what it really means. It is so rich and so valuable. We are going to, from now on, start having these available. So if you want communion, you can take it anytime you want. They'll be sitting here available. But when a man would propose to his wife, to the wife, when she took the cup and drank it, they became wed in all things except those that lead to children. They were wed from that moment. In fact, in the Bible, there is no fiance. There is wed or unwed. That's it. But the only thing they couldn't do in that time when she drank the cup was, was consummate the marriage. They could not consummate yet. And so what would happen is when the man would get her to drink the cup, then the father would send him off to prepare a place for her. I want you to catch some of the symbolism that God is showing you in the richness of communion. He would leave and go and prepare a place for her. He had to go and build it many times onto the father's house or prepare it. When he was building that, he was preparing the bridal chamber. He was preparing where they were going to live. And he had to go off and build that. And only the father, only the father could tell him that's good enough. When I approve of what you built, then you can come back for your bride. So when Jesus says, only the father knows the time or day that I'll return, that's what he's talking about. He went to prepare a place for us, his bride. This is what the cup meant. He's telling them, I'm coming back for you. I go to prepare a place for you. You're my bride. You're my beloved. And finally, when the bride had prepared a place, he was allowed to come back for her. But see, the bride had a responsibility in the waiting. See, she didn't know what day or time or hour he would return. Does that sound familiar? And in the waiting, she had to go through what was called a mikvah. Okay, a baptism. By the way, there are more than one baptism in the Bible, if you didn't know that. There's seven. And one of those was that she had to go through a spiritual and physical cleaning and cleansing process to keep herself pure and cleansed. She had to baptize in order to stay pure and cleansed, waiting on her bride to come or her groom to come because she did not know when the groom would arrive. And on the day that the groom would finally arrive, he would come in, usually in darkness, So he wasn't seen and he would come in at daybreak many times. Not always, but many times. He'd come in and he would be heralded and announced that the groom has returned with the blowing of the shofar of the trumpets. They would blow it to say the groom has returned. Does that sound familiar? To let him know that the groom has come back for the bride and the bride had to be ready. And the bride would go out and be able to meet her husband. And then they would consummate The marriage, they'd have a wedding feast, by the way, that lasted for two weeks. Some of y'all are not getting the proper wedding you deserve, princesses. Okay, I'm just saying. Dads, you're going to have to prepare for a two-week wedding. Now they heard it. Now they heard it. Some some dad's going to be mad at me now. They had a two-week wedding feast. You know, it's no wonder... A lot of you guys misunderstand the story in the Bible. Look, I'm telling you, Jesus was funny and he was a little ornery too. I'm telling you, Jesus was ornery. Some of you don't read it right because you don't get the humor and you don't get the orneriness. When Jesus goes to the woman, he says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel. And she says, don't even the the dogs get the scraps? And he's like, ha, okay. He, He wasn't saying no to her. He was checking her faith and being a little ornery. There are a lot of times where he did that. And when they challenged him on it, he's like, yeah, okay, good. He wants to see that pressing in. He wants to see the hunger and thirst that we have for him. But it's no mistake that God, that Jesus came and his very first miracle he ever did. Does anybody remember the first miracle that Jesus did? Water into wine. You see, I believe that this was strategic and purposeful and God did it knowing exactly what he's gonna do. Some of you are like, well, he was just being honoring to his mother. His mother didn't make him. Are you telling me that Mary had the authority and power to override heaven's plan and make him reveal himself before his real time? No, the pattern of Jesus was always to go to people and say, no, I can't do that. And and for them to then press him. And he says, okay, I'll do it. That was his pattern. It was no different with Mary woman, what do you want from me? It's not my time yet. She doesn't say, yes, you need to do it for me. She just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he asks. She surrenders to him, do whatever he says. And he smiles probably and says, all right, get me some vases. He knew it was his time. He knew it was his moment and he was setting the stage for this. See, the very first miracle he ever did was to take ceremonial cleansing jars. I want you to catch this. These were ritual jars that washed people clean. They were meant to take away sin. And he took water. Who's the living water? And he turned it into wine at a wedding. See he was foreshadowing the reason he was turning water into wine. See, he turned water into wine at the first wedding and then he turned water excuse me, wine into blood at the second wedding. His wedding with you. Water into wine, wine into blood. He was setting a pattern that said, "This is my wedding feast. This is my wedding day with you. This is my covenant I make with you, and I will not drink of the cup again until I return for you." Why? Because a bride and a groom did not drink of the cup again until they feasted together and they broke the glass. Opa! right? <laughs> Some of you are like, "What? That's that's the wrong that's the wrong nation. It's Mazel Tov. I was just seeing if anybody would say anything. It was written in Greek, so OPA still works. Okay. Mazeltov. That was a theological joke. Like, some of you are like, I just don't get it. And a, and a theologian would have laughed at that. Okay. So, water into wine, wine into blood. A marriage covenant where he said, This is my body, it's broken for you. But you see, you have to bring something to offer to the bride. See, any covenant will cost you something. It comes with a price. And Jesus paid for this covenant. See, a covenant has to be covered in blood. When God made a covenant with Adam, when he made a promise to Eve, the first thing he did before he made that covenant was he slaughtered animals and he covered them with skins. He made clothes for them. So he presented them with a gift and there was blood shed for the remission of sin. When he made the covenant with Abraham, he did it with the blood of an animal. There was a covenant made. When Jesus made the covenant, he did it with his blood to make an everlasting covenant. But I want you to get it. It wasn't just a covenant of salvation, it was a covenant of betrothal. It was the offer to you as the bride. It's the offer to you to say, I come into covenant with you, but I don't just come into covenant with you. But I want you to understand this covenant cannot be broken by you. Once you come into it, I will never abandon it because you have. But I will always be standing there, ready and steadfast to receive my bride back to me. We read about Malachi about him, uh, uh, Malachi about him taking back the bride, and, and we hear the stories about about his. Bride in revelation. I want to say this to you because a lot of times we don't get revelation. We don't get, we don't get relationship. We don't get the revelation of relationship on a deep level. There are six levels of relationship that God has given us. First, before we come into zero is we don't believe. But once we believe, we become believers. And then we become disciples. And then we become for, uh, slaves. Excuse me. Believers, disciples, slaves. And then after slaves, we become friends. And after friends, we become sons. These are the five levels of relationship, individual relationship that we go through. Oh, to be counted a friend of God, but oh, so much more to be a son or a daughter of God. When I say sons, I mean daughters too, okay? Okay. Those are the five levels of individual relationship, but there is one level beyond that, and that is the bride of Christ. That is the bride of Christ, or what do we call it? The body of Christ. They are interchangeable. Why? Because man and woman cleave to each other, and they become one flesh. The body and the bride are no different. They are one flesh. They have cleaved together. Jesus said in John chapter 17, he said, Father, as you and I are one, let them also be one. This cup doesn't just put you in relationship. It doesn't just write your sins. It makes you one with Him as a bride. It puts you into right relationship. We're the body of Christ. Here's the thing sonship is individual, brideship is corporate. It is the ultimate expression of where God is trying to take His church. When you come into right relationship with Him, you become a believer, and then you become a disciple. And then you become a slave, I will serve you. And then you find out you're a friend and then you realize your sonship. But if you stop there, you will miss the full oneness that God wants you to have with him. When you become the bride and when you become the bride is when the love of God becomes a love for his people as well. When you come into unity with others, when there's a unifying of the body of Christ with the blood of the lamb and he brings us into one unity together. You don't believe me? try to find sonship in the book of Revelation. It doesn't exist. You know what you do find in the book of Revelation? The bride. By the time we get to the last book, the last chapter, the last moment, the returning of Christ, he is not coming back for his sons and daughters. He's coming back for his bride. He's coming back for those that have taken the cup of covenant, the blood of Jesus, and it flows over their life. The word of God says in Revelations, it says you overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony by the covenant. By the covenant, because I don't know about you men in here, but nobody messes with my bride. You can mess with me. You can get my face. You can call me names. You can tell me I'm crazy. You could, you. I I mean, all you got to do is read through my comments on any Facebook post. Okay, I dare you to read the comments on Charisma Magazine about me. I got 30 comments. Oh, oh there's one nice one. All right. Yoo-hoo. You can say anything you want about me, but you say it about my bride. Say something about my wife. Watch me. Pastor Wren, that's not very loving. Nope, I forgot it for five minutes, but for five minutes, I'm going to black out on you. <laughs> afterwards. Is there a man in the house that would disagree with me? Now we're like, I hope I'll show restraint. I'll only break a few teeth. He can chew on the left side. That's fine. That's what a husband would say if someone messes with their wife. And you know what? I would never call that a bad husband. Amen, sisters? Would you call that a bad husband? Right? Some of you are like, I got a man who take care of me. Anywhere I go, I'm safe. Sing them songs about it. Is there anyone here is like, I just really hope I get a weak, frail man for a husband one day? <laughs> if, if you say yes, you have, might have been through trauma. We'll start counseling on Monday, okay? That's about the only people I see ever do that. They're like, they've been traumatized. They want somebody that they're not afraid of, and that does happen. But I want you to understand the love of God, that he wants to come into agreement with you, wants to come into covenant with you. He wants to become one with you. He wants to, we're not preaching a oneness doctrine here. Don't, don't get me wrong. If you've heard oneness doctrine, that's not what I'm preaching here. I'm saying that God wants to be your betrothed. He doesn't just want to be your Lord. He doesn't just want you to be, him to be your master. He doesn't just want to be a friend. He doesn't just want to be a father. He wants to be the groom. There's the story of the 10 virgins who go out and they're waiting on their groom, but some of them do not have enough oil in their lamps to sustain him. See, we don't have a requirement that he'll abandon us. What we have to do is keep our oil lamps full so when he shows up, we're ready for it. See, it's on us to keep our oil full. It's on us to stay full and filled so that when he shows up, we're ready for it. It's on us to take the mikvah, to stay cleansed, to stay pure, to stay holy, to stay righteous, so that when he shows up, we don't miss him, that we're ready for his showing. See, he will not abandon us nor forsake us, but we can miss his arrival. If we are not staying prepared and watching and listening and waiting on him to show up, we might miss his arrival. I'm not talking about the second coming. I'm talking about him in the room right now. I'm talking about when we gather in here and he shows up wanting to heal. He shows up wanting to speak and we miss his arrival. I didn't see you in the room, Lord. I'm sorry I missed you. You know, you can be in the same room as another person in here and they are encountering Jesus and you completely missed his arrival. Your groom showed up, but you were distracted by something else. Your heart wasn't in it. You weren't waiting and looking for your groom to show up. Your lamp wasn't lit and held out in the darkness to see if he was arriving. You'd run out of oil so you couldn't see. Some of us run out of oil, but this is the way we come into covenant with him. But the way we live is the oil that keeps us ready for his arrival. The light going for his arrival. And we need to burn from the right place. We need to burn with oil. We need to be on fire for him. You cannot be on fire when your lamp is empty. You need to allow heaven to fill you up. Amen? So this morning, we're going to take communion. And I hope the richness and depth of this is different for you. That what we're doing this morning when we take this is we're saying yes to his betrothal offer. If you've never come into right relationship with Jesus, this is your moment to say yes. The God of heaven and earth. I want you to understand something that Christianity is different from every other religion on earth. Every other religion on earth is man's pursuit of God. But Christianity is God's pursuit of man. It's God seeking you, making an offer to you. He turned the water into wine as a betrothal offering at the Last Supper, the first supper and the last supper, the first miracle and the last miracle that he did was one was water into wine and one was wine into blood so that he could be betrothed to you. Amen. Father, Jesus, thank you paying for a covenant with us with your broken body. Thank you that you were beaten so that we wouldn't. Thank you, Lord, that you were beaten so that we could have victory. Thank you, Lord, that your body didn't just die, but it rose again. It was restored so that the body of Christ could be restored. Thank you for paying for this covenant and offering yourself as a sacrifice for the payment of this covenant. Lord, we take this bread as your body who's broken for us in remembrance of what you suffered for us, what you're willing to do to protect us and to bring us into right relationship. We take this in the name of Jesus. Jesus, as you turned water into wine, so you turned wine into blood. That this is not just the blood of Jesus, but it is the betrothal cup. The cup of offering, the cup of marriage proposal, that you say that you want to be one with us as you are one with the Father, so you want to be one with us. That the That they shall leave their mother and father and cleave to each other and the two shall become one flesh. That this is the offer of covenant of two becoming one. That Lord, we don't just come into cleansing covenant. We don't just come into right relationship covenant, but we come as a bride. Corporately loving one another, coming into agreement with each other. That this cup not only represents our agreement with you, but it's our agreement with our brothers and our sisters that we come into one that we come into agreement, that we say yes to the bride, yes to the body, and yes to you, Jesus, that you are making an offer of betrothal to us and we do not take it lightly. I just want you to take a moment and tell him yes and renew your covenant with him as you drink this cup and drink it when you're ready. Thank you for your blood. Thank you, Jesus. We do it in remembrance of you. We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom.